Welcome back to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss, coming to you from the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger, coming to you from Bluff, Utah. We've got a little bit of a wonky show for you today. We're going to be talking to a scientist and conservationist, Ed Grumbine. He recently wrote an op-ed for Sierra Magazine about what is missing from President Biden's America the Beautiful plan. Now, don't get us wrong. We wholeheartedly support the goals of the plan, especially the part, of course, about protecting 30% of America's land and waters by 2030. Ed, however, in this piece has some really good detailed suggestions on how to make America the Beautiful and 30 by 30 more actionable. But before we get to that, let's do the news. The past two weeks have been a little quiet as far as national public lands news goes. So we're going to tell you about some exciting new land acquisitions. In Wyoming, the Bureau of Land Management purchased more than 35,000 acres of private land southwest of Casper along the North Platte River. It's the agency's biggest land purchase to date in Wyoming, and it will open up access to around 40,000 acres of previously inaccessible public land. Wyoming has more than 4 million acres of public land that is inaccessible due to private land. The Conservation Fund helped purchase the private ranch and transfer it to the BLM, which chipped in around $20 million from the Federal Land and Water Conservation Fund. A nice big win for LWCF there. Let's head to New Mexico, where tribes and the Trust for Public Land have partnered with the state to open up public access to 54,000 acres of land west of Albuquerque. That purchase includes two adjoining properties near Mount Taylor, a site that is sacred to several New Mexico tribes and pueblos. Over the next five years, the land will be transferred to the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish for management. Acoma Pueblo Governor Randall Vicente celebrated the purchase, adding that before the land was turned into a private ranch, it was used by his pueblo for traditional cultural and ceremonial purposes. It's projects like this that lay the groundwork for reaching 30 by 30, identifying land with conservation and cultural values, putting together partnerships across private groups, states, tribes, and the federal government. So as much as we see opposition from folks who try to mislead about what 30 by 30 is, like American Stewards of Liberty, who we've talked about on here before, when you see how this works in practice, these examples in Wyoming and New Mexico, there is certainly no one out there complaining that we are increasing access to the outdoors and making more space for nature. So keep all of this in mind as you listen to this conversation with Ed. Ed Grumbine is a biologist who worked for five years in China as a senior scientist with the Center for Mountain Futures at the Kunming Institute of Botany, part of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He's published extensively on climate change adaptation, Mekong River dams, and biodiversity protection. And he's here today to talk about a recent op-ed he wrote for Sierra Magazine about President Biden's America the Beautiful plan, specifically the 30 by 30 initiative. Ed, welcome to the podcast. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, Ed, tell us a little bit about the biodiversity research you've done over the years, especially as it relates to the goal of protecting 30% of land and water across the world by 2030. I have a a, a recent and present uh, tense answer to that question, and then a, a, a historical answer, which reflects how long I've been working on these issues. Um I got interested in in biodiversity on federal lands in the U.S. back in the 80s. And uh, through my Ph.D. in environmental policy, after doing a lot of conservation science and conservation biology, I went the policy route down that rabbit hole. 
um, I, I focused uh, pretty much exclusively on U.S. wildlands management, especially how um, that management pertained to protecting biological diversity. Uh, and I, I published extensively in that area for um, almost two decades. Uh, then in the early 2000s, uh, I got bit by the China bug. And that led me outside of the U.S. and ultimately uh, to live in China for five years, uh, working on a international scientist fellowship through the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And that based me in uh, Yunnan province in far southwestern China, think borderline uh, neighbors of uh, Myanmar, Vietnam, Laos. Um, but in the north part of our province, uh, we had the eastern edge of the Himalaya. Uh, so we had snow leopards and brown bears in the north, and we had uh, tigers and elephants and tropical forests in the south. It was a great place to learn more about biodiversity in China. But I never gave up, of course, uh, my interest in U.S. federal lands. When I came back to the U.S. to live permanently, um, I got right back into federal lands management. Uh, and then when I had a, another opportunity to, to return to China, uh, focused this time on the global biodiversity protection process, uh, uh, the COP15 meeting coming up, which will be whenever it gets around to being done. It will happen in Kunming, my old hometown in China. Um, so I got into the international level through the Convention on Biological Diversity and how international nations as a global governance group would create the next 10-year plan for international biodiversity protection. And that provided, to finish answering the question, a, a very nice uh, connection link segue into refocusing on the new administration's plans to link federal strategy here in the U.S. to international efforts, which I had already been working directly on. Sure. So that then, I guess, brings us to this very thoughtful piece you wrote uh, for Sierra Magazine, uh, looking at both both praising and criticizing the thirty by thirty plan for, I guess, what's vague or what's still to be filled in. What what prompted you to to raise your hand and say, "Hang on, there needs to be more here." So. My first question in my story for the Biden administration is, um, how are we going to do this? Or if we look at the goal and where we're currently at, that means we'd have to protect an area in the U.S. about the size of Alaska to reach the 30% goal. If we use the traditional approach of creating more national parks, more wilderness areas, more wildlife refuges. In other words, more, let's call them protected areas. Any person who's living and breathing today in the United States realizes immediately that we are not going to protect by traditional means that much new land. We just can't. So the good news, or the bad news, is that we're not able to do that. Uh, the good news is that because we can't do it by traditional means, that is going to force us 
to look at different strategies that give get us to the protected goal, but not necessarily using protected areas as the means toward that goal. And to me, that's a very good thing. Um, we can get more into that in, in a moment. Um, the second way to take a look at that using America the Beautiful Biden's plan would be to look at how one defines protection, which we've already touched upon a wee bit, versus another American traditional pathway. Uh, we call it conservation. Traditionally, protection has been, again, through protected areas, parks, wilderness, etc. Conservation is much more generally defined. But for our, our listeners, uh, I would just use the phrase, let's call it multiple use, where you, you can log, you can graze, you can extract any number of natural resources from federal lands, state lands, uh, oil and gas, uh, grazing, um, firewood collection, all the things that we do uh, because we depend on nature. Um, we would need to readjust, um, given point number one, our, our, the way we operate when we talk about conservation and when we talk about protection. So we need to think less about how those two concepts and how they play out on the ground are different from each other. And in terms of 30 by 30, we need to think about the goals, whether we call it protection or conservation. In other words, do we reach the goal of taking care of nature, whether we are using nature or whether we're, quote unquote, protecting nature? And I see that as a very good development because Americans have tended to put protection in one little box and how we work with lands in another little box. And we can no longer do that. So give me an example of how that plays out, because. Uh, you, you talk about grazing on public lands, and there are a lot of folks who, who point out rightfully that it is very destructive. BLM currently doesn't even know the status of rangeland health on about half the land it manages. So how do you get to grazing while also protecting the biodiversity value or the, the climate value of those lands? What does that look like in practice? It could be about sustainable grazing, the particular question you asked, or you could substitute forestry, or you could substitute farming. There, there is a rich thousands of papers, literature on how to do any kind of natural resource extraction, uh, let's call it sustainably. Um, and so my answers uh, are, are one person with my professional background, but th there's a host of people who've spent their whole careers studying grazing, how to do it better, studying logging, how to do it better. And the devil, of course, is in the details. How you might graze in Wisconsin uh, would look completely different from how you might sustainably manage grazing lands in Nevada or Utah or California. So one of the strengths of the Biden initiative is that they propose to answer some of these challenging questions uh, through local-led initiatives that would then be scaled up through state and federal land management action. But they would 
they would query local people with the dramatically different uh, natural ecosystem situations they face and then put together plans that are locally led, but what the Biden administration calls nationally scaled. Now, I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, but to finalize my answer, we have a host of answers that are out there, many, many tools in the toolkit that can be used no matter where you are and no matter what the resource issue is you're trying to create sustainability around. Well, I think that is a perfect segue to another question you raise in your piece, which is how to measure the conservation success of these efforts. Um, And you said there are a number of tools and metrics that scientists have come up with. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk about some of those and which ones you think would make sense. Well, one thing that the Biden administration has done is create a wonderful conservation vision that that expands conservation from just nature to people, another critical element in their plan. That's never been done in the history of U.S. conservation, period. Um, What the Biden administration has not done so far is create specific definitions around what conservation would look like if, for example, we're no longer going to depend on protected areas and we're going to expand out into working lands where we do graze, where we do log, where we do grow our food, where we do gain our livelihoods. If we're going to um, expand beyond protected areas to to protect nature and people, um, you need a baseline set of definitions you need a baseline uh, set of measurements that lead towards success. Um, And America, the beautiful so far, lacks those specific definitions and specific measures, despite being released a year ago. So I, I have many answers to those questions in, since the administration has not given us those answers yet. And so do many other people, uh, including people who think what we're discussing is a bunch of malarkey. Uh, there are folks who think what we're talking about is a bunch of malarkey on all sides. A number of folks who would say, yes, the, the only way to get there is strictly protected areas. And a number of folks who would say, no, just the fact that it exists as a national forest should therefore count as protected. And you've got this public comment period that just happened closed earlier this year where theoretically everyone had the chance to weigh in. And I, I've you know spent some time with those comments and you, it, it truly does run the gamut there. So when you're talking about your, your suggestion here of measuring success beyond just here are the boundaries of national monuments or wilderness or national parks, and you're talking about measuring success in a more qualitative or I guess outcome based way, if you're putting that into what the administration is going to call the conservation atlas, how do you how do you take that qualitative measurements and turn it into something you can map, which is inherently quantitative? So to, to use one example to answer your question, since growing food is so important to virtually every country in the world, if we reconnected our ag lands here in the U.S. 
to our more natural lands uh, that might fall under a protected area status through creating uh, green strips, through creating corridors, through doing a host of agricultural practices that would green up our agricultural uh, methods and connect them into our, let's call them protecting nature methods. There, there is no rule in the world that requires us to separate those two activities out. Uh, and w- we can restore lands in and around ag fields and grow our food in a, a greener way that creates a benefit for the farmer and also creates a benefit for, say, biodiversity protection. Yes, that requires planning. Yes, it might impact bottom lines, but not necessarily. The the devil, again, is in the details. And how you grow corn in Nebraska versus how you grow rice in the Sacramento Valley in California require us to dig down into the eco-regional details. We can't create a one-size-fits-all plan to do these kinds of things. But at the same time, we need federal leadership to get us going and create let's call it pathways for regional and local solutions that are framed by the federal government through plans such as America the Beautiful. All right. I'm going to really dive into the weeds here because what I want to do is figure out how to translate what you're saying into the tools and data that we know Interior is working with so far, especially this Protected Areas Database, PAD, which breaks up lands, classifies them into four categories, gap status, one, two, three, four, with gap one being effectively national parks and wilderness, gap four being everything goes, being developed and all, you know, uh, take all the the mining and, and oil you want. And then you've got this area of gap two and three, where gap two is essentially lands that are managed with conservation primarily and gap three being lands that may have some conservation value, but not permanent protections. Where does the stuff that you're talking about here, this working lands, but managed with conservation value, where do they fit in? And and are these categories enough or does there need to be something else in there to get us to 30 by 30 in a meaningful way? That's a great question. Um, since, uh, the, the gap system that you refer to is 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 critically important, but I'm going to use uh, just the a more common phrase: working lands, uh, because they're not officially protected like Gap One lands are protected. Um, so, if you look at all lands in the U.S., um, most of the lands are private lands. So another way to to cut this pie is to look at uh, government lands versus private lands. Uh, So if you look at private lands with this 30 by 30 goal in mind, you you don't want to take away landowners' rights. This is the United States, uh, enough said. Um, But you also have to acknowledge that on American private lands, Uh, We've got about half of all the habitat for threatened and endangered species. And we we have about 30% of all the drinking water that that we drink as U.S. citizens uh, comes from private lands. Uh, And 100% of the food that we eat comes from private lands. Uh, 
So um, since private lands are roughly 60% of our country, uh, we, we just these numbers show us that we, we can't really depend on federal lands to, to get us to 30 by 30. Um, if you want to focus just on the federal lands, most federal lands are working lands. They're not protected areas. Despite the number of parks and wilderness we have, the majority of federal lands are unprotected working lands. So whether you look at the private land slice or the federal land slice, protected areas in and of themselves are, are not going to get us to 30 by 30. So back to what I said a moment ago about forcing us to deal with, let's call it the elephant in the room. One of the uh, the sentences I like in the Sierra story is that, wow, great, we protect 30% of our lands. You know, what about the other 70%? Does that, does that give us a blank check to like just run rough? Tra- right, trash the other 70. Exactly, yeah. trash the other 70 might be the, 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 the opposite, you know, motto of 30 by 30. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then of course, given the private land scenario, and of course the the fact that we get many resources that we need in our society from federal land extraction, um, how do you work with landowners on the private lands to manage better yet still yield important things like all the food that we eat in the country? Um, and then when you look at, uh, so let, let's take agriculture, um, and then we can give a, use an example from federal land. So let's take one example from the private sector, and then one example from the federal sector. Uh, Americans um, are not leaders in, in greening the agricultural sector. Uh, you can look at how much research money is available in the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, for supporting organic farming. It, it's it's almost insignificant, especially when you look at the growth of organic farming and food in the U.S., which is and has been for over 10 years, the fastest growing sector of, of food in the U.S. Um, but our USDA funds it in at super low levels. So one thing we could do, compared to subsidies for like just soy and corn. Et cetera. Exactly. So one thing we could do in terms of, OK, how do we do this? In terms of creating sustainable food systems on private lands, we could simply uh, get more government support for uh, organic farming practices. And that can be done through any number of pathways, research, education, subsidies. Um, Virtually none of that exists at the level that it needs to exist to create sustainable food systems that would contribute to 30 by 30. I've I've already mentioned um, field margins, um, uh, linking ag lands into wild systems. Um, you could also address chemical use, of course. You could also address uh, the use of super simple things like more cover crops that most people wouldn't even associate with 30 by 30 issues, but under America the Beautiful, just using cover crops more would dramatically alter our climate carbon footprint. Just through carbon sequestration? Yes. You could, you could look at, um, if you think about agriculture and how it could be part of America the Beautiful, part of 30 by 30, uh, you could look at uh, the supply side, 
which we've been discussing, how food is grown. Uh, you could also look at supply chains. How do we green the supply chains of agriculture, both nationally within the U.S. and as we've been learning through COVID, internationally through our supply chain dependence for agricultural products, say, from other countries? Um, I would say that before COVID, Americans had almost no awareness of supply chains. So one of the one of the good news pieces of the virus is that now more Americans are more aware of supply chains. But as as I said for the scientific side of 30 by 30, the the international and national literatures on supply chain uh sustainability is is rich. It's just it's just not penetrated into our US culture here. So one thing we could do would be to instead of looking at or, or rather, we, we could look at our agricultural supply chains as, as a, a national security issue, which we are doing, uh, but we could green that as a, as a way to increase our national security. We could have an explicit policy plank that focuses on the green side of supply chain sustainability instead of just the security side. That's another thing we could do. One thing that the Biden administration has already done is look at one of the two critical pieces of demand side issues in creating a more sustainable agriculture that would fit within America the Beautiful. Food waste. The, the Biden administration is also uh, is, is already addressing uh, how to reduce Americans' food waste. We waste about 40% of our food from the field to the table. Uh, and Biden is already working within the USDA to start reducing that percentage. The other critical piece of demand side greening of our ag that would take us toward 30 by 30 would be uh, adjusting American diets but uh, to eat less meat. But that is a tremendous challenge. And not just in the US, but it goes to the heart of personal behavior cultural um, history, uh, wherever you bring that question up in the world. And so I'm, I'm not assuming that is going to be dealt with anytime soon, but the, the scientific community has highlighted dietary change toward eating less meat as one of the critical pieces for protecting biodiversity because it reduces forest conversion all around the world for beef pasture production and reducing human health issues because of the health issues around eating too much meat. So we'll wait to see how that all, all plays out. If you switch over to forest management and, and go back towards something that's more traditionally thought of as contributing to a 30 by 30 uh, goal, um, our national forests, um, there is one study I read in, in, to prepare for my, my Sierra article that suggested that in the Western United States, about 25% of working national forest lands, if they were protected, not by locking them up, but by simply better forest management, better uh, logging practices, could yield a, a tremendous uh, carbon sequestration uh, benefit and pr probably an additional benefit 
for uh, biodiversity protection, just in terms of how we manage about 25% of our Western national forests. Um, so nobody's really doing anything about that. And the literature is full of back and forth methodology suggestions on how better to green our forestry in the West and all around the country. But the details and, and the discussion and the debate are already out there. And we simply have to choose between, prioritize, and get some experimental work going on the ground so that we can look at what works and what works less well, and then shift our management strategies toward what works better here and works better there. None of that is highlighted yet in America the Beautiful. All of that work needs to happen or 30 by 30 will not happen. Now, just to state the obvious there, when you're talking about changing dietary habits, eating less beef, you're running into a political buzzsaw with the cattlemen. When you're talking about changing forestry habits to put biodiversity first uh, and clear cuts second or third or just off the table, you're running into a buzzsaw of the forestry industry uh, politically. So there is the science and there's the political reality. I'm not going to ask you to necessarily navigate that. You be coming from a, a biology standpoint, not a, a political standpoint. Uh, but there, I think there is a political, how do you get from where we are now to what you're proposing, right? Absolutely. Well, my, my PhD for better or worse is in policy. So uh, again, for better or worse, I, I'm happy to tangle with uh, the, the political issues that, that, would create a policy um, opening or a policy roadblock. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and so you could say one reason why America the Beautiful remains flawed because of the, the gaps in definitions of conservation versus protection or funding for this, but not for that, uh, would have a political basis to be sure. Um, so if I was the administration recognizing the political challenges, I would, I'd start small and I would, uh, but, but I would, I would, um, I'd start with where I had room to start. I would, I'd, I'd look at a list of, wow, there's 50 things we could do in federal land strategy around forestry. What's the low hanging fruit that has bipartisan support? Um, what, what, what has the biggest bang for the carbon sequestration um, uh, goal? And how might that be linked to biodiversity protection? And is, is there a third linkage possible to environmental justice issues, the, the third large goal in America the Beautiful? The in interesting answer is, uh, the good news answer is, is that there are certain places in the country where you actually can create a viable goal that links all three of those larger goals together and you get a win, win, win situation. There is some scientific work that is already doing that in different countries that we haven't done too much of that work in the U.S. Canada, right across the border, is already looking around at Canadian lands to find out where they can protect carbon, 
where they can protect biodiversity and where they can increase environmental justice opportunities by doing the same thing in the same place and still getting a triple win out of it. That work is happening. We need to do more of it. The problem with the Biden administration is that in America the Beautiful, it doesn't appear to recognize any of this cutting edge work. And so within the plan, it's still very traditional. Oh, we're going to do environmental justice here, and then we're going to do carbon climate sequestration here, and then we're going to do biodiversity protection 30 by 30 over there. We need to link those goals more. Yes, there won't be a win-win-win everywhere, but even a double win or even a single win would be valuable. The administration needs to prioritize, start small, look for the triple wins, because I'm assuming, correct me if you see differently, that a triple win is likely to get bipartisan support more than any single win anywhere. Well, I think that you may have just answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Ed, if you had two minutes with President Biden to talk to him about America the Beautiful, what would be your top line message? What would you say he needs to do today? He needs to get um, specific about defining conservation, defining success. And he's got California as an example of how to do that. California has in their state level 30 by 30 plan already done that. The administration could do it. And then he needs to get real about a prioritization strategy, picking those areas where the science is directing him to focus on triple wins. He needs to um, convene, if, if, if America the Beautiful is going to be a truly locally led, regionally led, state buy-in, federal led plan, if you will, then he, he needs to convene some, some regional, statewide, tribal leaders in, in I, I would do it on a regional level, but you could do it on a state by state level. And if that was too much to ask, you could you could look at your priority list and say, where is environmental justice? Where is climate sequestration? Where is biodiversity protection most needed as quickly as possible? Pick those states. California is definitely one of them. And then meet have the meetings there if you can't do them everywhere all at once at the regional level. And then I would the last thing I would say to Joe, I would say, Mr. President, you've got to get real about about funding. Uh, a month ago, uh, the administration released a, a billion dollar strategic funding plan for America the Beautiful. But if you look at where the money actually comes from, it, it's from a federal perspective, funds that are already allocated, there is zero new money represented in that billion dollars. And only about 44% of that billion dollars exists from already allocated federal money. The rest is uh, going to come, quote unquote, from the private sector. Uh, and so far, it hasn't happened yet. I would say, do those three things, Joe, and and let's get on with it. I, I want to jump. Well, I, I want to close by looking ahead to COP15, the 
conference, international conference, maybe coming up in October, uh, in Kunming. Uh, if that happens, whenever it happens, maybe October, maybe not. Number one, what does success look like or what does failure look like coming out of that? And number two, is there any chance that China, given your work there for five years, what's your take? Does China get on board with any sort of 30 by 30 commitment? Does does India get on board with a 30 by 30 commitment? And how do you think U.S. leadership has the potential to play into that conference when it happens? This is an area very close to my heart. Um, I would say that uh, the jury is out, and I would be uh, even a little bit more positive uh, by saying that than I may feel in my heart. Uh, Here here are some problems. Um, The meeting, uh, which sets 10-year goals out to 2030 in this case, has been delayed four times. Uh, because of the virus and because of China's unique uh, uh, effort to to control the virus. China is also, for the first time in history, the leader of a major international effort, the Convention on Biological Diversity. Leadership changes every 10 years, uh, and this is China's moment to shine. They took it on well before the virus uh, reared its ugly head, But because of the politics within China, it's very difficult to be a global leader in the COP15 process while you're uh, adopting a zero COVID policy uh, domestically. Uh, You you just can't get people from all over the world to to come to China and have a meeting uh, without going through through Olympic scale um, issues um, as happened a, a few months ago. China doesn't want to repeat that. So if you leave the virus behind and allow the meeting to happen on its own, um, there are still problems. One of the major problems in terms of exerting U.S. leadership is that we haven't even signed on to the Convention for Biological Diversity. So we're not a card-carrying, signed-on signatory uh, to the the world's number one biodiversity protection um, action. Hard to lead when you haven't even signed up for the club yet. Yes, and we're we're not we we can sit on the sidelines, but it's very challenging to exert global leadership when uh, uh, Congress uh, won't sign you on to a, a UN initiative, and that's not going to change uh, anytime soon. So uh, even even with those uh, constraints, if you will, um, the the global biodiversity plan is not just about 30 by 30. 30 by 30 gets most of the press, but in in fact, there'll be 15 or 20 other more or less equal goals uh, uh, besides 30 by 30. 30 by 30 is one plank of COP15 as an international biodiversity meeting. Um, Agriculture, for example, is another plank. Um, uh, Sustainable development in terms of uh, food production and and sourcing is another plank. Uh, Supply chains are another plank. There are multiple planks that are not even on the U.S. radar screen. Uh, So I'm I'm, uh, cautious, and uh, since I'm an optimist, uh, I guess I can add optimistic onto that, but my caution um, is... uh, uh, 
is of concern right now in regard to international efforts. Well, we're going to leave it there. Ed, I really appreciate your perspective, both internationally and domestically. Um, This has been a a fascinating and illuminating conversation to me. So uh, we will link to that piece in Sierra Magazine in the show notes. uh, And I suspect we'll be talking to you again in the future. Uh, Ed Grumbine, thank you so much. A great pleasure. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Kate. Here's a little more good news to close out the episode. Bureau of Land Management employees voted to unionize a few weeks ago. The employees will gain more control over major changes to the agency, like, I don't know, relocation, by forming a union. This vote is the ironic result of Trump, David Bernhardt, and William Perry Penley trying to break the agency by moving its headquarters from D.C. to Colorado in 2019. Most of the relocated employees chose to quit or retire instead of moving across the country, causing a severe staffing shortage. And while Deb Holland moved the agency's headquarters back to D.C. earlier this year, there are still around 2,000 vacancies at the BLM. Hopefully, the stability provided by a union will help attract people to fill those roles. And that's it for our show today. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, recommendations for guests or our next episode, send those to podcast at westernpriorities.org or reach out to Kate or me on Twitter. And if you want to learn more about 30 by 30, visit roadto30.org. We've got a whole bunch of really gorgeous videos on some of the next round of potential national monuments there. Until next time, I'm Aaron Weiss. And I'm Kate Gretzinger. From us and everyone else at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks to Ed Grumbine for being so generous with his time, and thank you for listening to The Landscape. 